Welcome to TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of TalkScript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Let's find out if TalkScript is your type of podcast. Hello, and welcome to the TalkScript podcast. I am your host, Brian Forbes. I have with me today, Nick Nisi. Hello. Paul Shannon. Howdy. And Neil Roberts. It's an honor just to be nominated. <laughs> what category are you nominated in? Uh, best everything. <laughs> That's a good category. <laughs> Man, so humble. It's not me. I'm not nominating myself. You're right. You're <laughs> right. Okay. All right. Well, today we have a packed show. So let's get started. We have some community updates. Nick, what do you got for us? Yeah. So... We usually like to talk about uh, cool things happening in TypeScript right now in the TypeScript community, and we're kind of sticking to that, but more so talking about web development things. And one cool thing to keep an eye out for going forward is a project by MPM called Tink. And this is, uh, as they branded, a dependency unwinder for JavaScript. But I believe what this is going to be is it's a prototype of what a new CLI for MPM could be. And depending on how it goes, this could eventually replace the existing npm cli with this new tink and the main thing that it does is it does not it does not put a node modules directory into your projects instead it installs all of the modules that you need globally and then just uses those so you only ever have one version of whatever library you're trying to use loaded and it's loaded globally. And then every project that you have on your computer will use the same version, gotcha. which is really nice. Yeah. And that'll be a big improvement and hopefully help to clean up some of the node module hell that we sometimes find ourselves in. You mean the gigabytes of information? <laughs> right. Yeah. Whenever I go like clean up old projects, I see like, oh my gosh, this project is four gigabytes and it's just all node modules. Mm, <laughs> if yeah. I delete that, it's like 10 megs. <laughs> so it's kind of like, maven and it keeps like a central store of your repositories you downloaded (laughs) oh come on npm is just inching (laughs) upon maven it actually goes a little bit further this time and does it create like symbolic links then to your central store uh locally in your project i don't think so but i could be wrong is the store in your user directory does it store something called dot npm with the modules in it Right. Dot M2. I've saw and dot NPM, I mean, and uh, dot NPM2. Dot NPM settings. Right. <laughs> no, it'll just be NM. It won't be. Oh, it's a good yeah. abbreviation. NM2. So does it then, it has to create like a symbolic link then. Like it, you have to have a cache somewhere and then it links into that cache. Well, it's, I think that it overtakes the, the module loader to appropriately figure out where to load the projects from. So it's kind of overriding that part of node to properly do this. So you have to run everything with Tink Shell, I think. With Tink. Yeah. Okay. So then what if one project wants TypeScript 2.6 project unnamed and another project wants TypeScript 3.0 or 3.3 or latest? So I think you'd have a version of, you'd have 2.6 and 3.3 loaded globally, but you would only have those in that one global cache and not per uh, project that you're working on. So what Maven does is it caches by version. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it, it would have some sort of version. The way you made it sound initially was that there would only ever be one version 
of each library. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, well, that's going to suck. There would only be one version of each version. Got it. <laughs> one copy. Yeah. All right. But the other cool thing is that it can just run TypeScript code natively. So that's pretty cool. Uh, you'll be able to do run TypeScript without any kind of configuration. You don't have to set up a TS config or anything. I'm not sure what the defaults it would run with, probably just whatever the defaults are and go from there. But it's something cool to look at and to play around with. Very cool. Yeah, I heard they were hooking TS Node for that. Yeah, I think so. So I imagine anything you can do with TS Node on the command line, maybe you can pass in, maybe, hopefully. Maybe. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> It is really reassuring and nice to have, you know, a native TypeScript support in your NPM module. Definitely. That way you can just like run it without having to think about it. There's another update that we wanted to give about standard modules. Yeah. So this is something that's pretty interesting. And I, I saw that there was a proposal for like a standard library for JavaScript as part of the TC39 process. And it kind of came as a surprise to me this week when I noticed that Chrome actually shipped the first standard module. And it's just a very simple key value store, I think, over local storage. We'll have a link in the show notes to it. But it's a, a way that you can use an import statement and you import std colon kv dash store, I think. And that is pretty cool because it, it lets you use that module and it doesn't have to download anything because it's just part of the browser and then you can use it. And it kind of leads into uh, something interesting to think about is how do we feel about standard modules like this. What are your thoughts on that? It makes it seem like the old way of doing it was kind of crazy, like putting everything in the global scope. Yeah. This approach, like even if it has nothing to do with their specific key value storage library, right? Like just the idea of it coming in through an import rather than being a global object makes a lot more sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Users just kind of opt in. And it makes shimming like make a lot more sense, right? Like they have a way to have a shim for it so that if it's supported, it gets the native one. And if it's not, then it gets a secondary one. Yeah. Like it makes that make a lot of sense too, where you don't have to reach out and, and mess with the global scope. So what happens if you import something for a standard library that doesn't exist? Like if you go into like Firefox now and you did this, there's no KV storage. They have a shim for it is the idea. But if you didn't include that, I imagine it would just not be able to find it. <laughs> Well, yeah, and that's interesting because it would have to register itself at that location, mm -hmm. right? So there's a way to do that. Yeah, they have a they have a way to to include the non-native version of it as well. Yeah. Ah, a script type import map, mm -hmm. and then that's just an object that tells you what to import mm -hmm. for that location. Interesting. The other thing is, I mean, one of the reasons they did this is because it allows you to run potentially expensive code off of the main thread. So more of that type of stuff is welcome too, right? Like if we have more standard modules that work in such a way that they can run off the main thread is really interesting. How do you mean? Does it like as part of the importing of that, like if it has to run something to initialize or something, it would be doing that off of the main thread or? I'm not sure exactly how they implement it, but like just making more of a pattern where, you know, if you're living within a callback rather than dealing with a global variable, the thing that initiates the callback has a lot more leeway in terms of determining what your runtime looks like, right? So just that as a pattern makes a lot more sense. I don't know the specifics of how they deal with it being not blocking. I imagine that it's doing that outside of the main thread and then just passing it, serializing it and passing it back to the callback on the main thread. Something like fetch does nowadays, right? 
Yeah, yeah. By doing it as an import and wrapping it, we might be able to do some more interesting things with what thread you're running on. Very, very interesting. Yeah, I think it gets an opportunity to uncrowd the global space. Like everything gets stuck in there. Although I see the next step as being, you know, how you have your WebKit prefixes. We have a standard STD prefix right now. I can see WebKit as being a new prefix of experimental features and and everything else like that down the pipe. So I would expect this to start to blow up really quickly after, I mean, since they've, they've already done it now and it's basically just Chrome and Firefox in the race. I can see them having explicit like, hey, we're testing these new things Mm -hmm. that we want to become part of our browser system now. And so it moves it off of the global window space, which is nice. But then it's going to open up a lot more craziness, I think, because it's going to be an opportunity to expand it out as each browser vendor sees fit beyond the standard library. That could be a way to like put experiments. Like you could have a dash dash WebKit standard library like flag before that or something. And then, you know, if you're using that, you're explicitly using the WebKit specific experimental implementation. And then going forward, you know, you would have to change your code to change to the real one. That would be an interesting way to go about it. What's also interesting is that they've got this idea of import maps. I don't know where they got this idea. It (laughs) sounds really similar to AMD. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) essentially you set up, if you don't have your... Like uh, if you're on Firefox and you want to pull in this KV store, right? You set up this map to pull in the polyfill, which again, sounds a lot like AMD. Shout out to the guy who pinged me about AMD. We didn't (laughs) forget about it. It's just, (laughs) we forgot about it. It's everywhere now. They must have somebody older than 30 working on that team. Somebody older than 30, yeah. (laughs) So it's really interesting that they're kind of adding a feature that we saw as deficient in the modular spec into, not as a spec really, but as eventually it probably will be a spec, but a way to map modules in, right? That's something that's very powerful. And basically you need that because you, you can't check the DOM anymore to see if it exists. Yeah, right. And that's like that's one of the things that is really painful or or would be painful going forward with like the native module implementation is being able to like mock out imports. Mm-hmm. And you can do that really easily with AMD and you can do it right now with ESM because you're just hooking into the underlying whatever it's being built to to do that. But when it's all native without a way to do that, I think that that limits the way that you can effectively test your code, especially when you have things like that aren't uh, DI'd in there, like they are in Angular, right? Yeah, but even still, like there's times in when I'm working with Angular where I want to map in just a mock module, and I don't want to have to set up <laughs> explicitly all of the injection. I just want to be like, eh, yeah, just use this instead of that. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that, I mean, given the restrictions of the module with respect, that's just not easy to do. I thought that was an interesting part because they're like, hey, how do you get this into your browser? And I come down and they're like, oh, these are import maps. And I'm looking at it, it's like, those are called path maps. <laughs> Dojo already did that. <laughs> yeah, right? Dojo already did it for sure. All right, cool. So that's coming down the pike. We'll have links to all the stuff in our show notes. Thanks, Nick, for bringing us up to speed on that. All right, today, our main topic 
is going to be about Dojo Meta. If you're not familiar, we all work at SitePen and we all work on Dojo, the Dojo Toolkit. And so you might be thinking, why is this interesting to me? Well, Dojo is written in TypeScript. Um, we are a TypeScript first framework. It is usable without TypeScript. And what it really means is that we have type safety baked in. We compile right. it using type safe. We're strict true, which means we have very strict typing that conforms to you know what we're actually doing. So it's the framework that has contracts that we contract and say that all of this stuff does what it says it does. And here's our proof. Yeah, I like to say that us using strict true means that the code is harder for us to write, but it's easier for users of Dojo to use. Yep, that's a good way to put it. Dojo Meta, somebody give me an overview of what Dojo Meta is. Sure. So the Dojo Metas are kind of an escape hatch for reactive architectures. So for those that haven't used Dojo before, Dojo is a reactive architecture uh, similar to React in that we follow like the single unidirectional loop for our, our data. And so as kind of a consequence, we have this virtual DOM and that stands on top of your real DOM. And for the most part, you want to have the virtual DOM interact with your DOM layer and not kind of jump in the middle of that because your virtual DOM is constantly comparing to your DOM layer and updating it. If you get in the middle of that process, then things become a little sticky. So unfortunately, at some point, everybody has to do something that is more imperative and requires actually looking at the DOM rather than something that is more property driven. And so Dojo has this idea of a meta, which gives access to the DOM after it's rendered, but it gives access to it in kind of this safe way inside of this meta. So you have a widget or a controller type device, and that widget or component has access to the DOM through these metas. So your meta has access to the DOM, and then you can pull out properties. And so we have you know a list of them. We'll kind of talk about them in a little bit. But Metas kind of encapsulate this access, whereas like in other languages, they... I was just going to ask about that. How, how would you do this in like uh, React? Yeah, so React has this idea of a ref, and ref is a property or something that you put on to your widget, and it gives you access to the DOM after it's rendered, which is gives you a chance to do nasty things. It also gives you a chance to like look at the actual DOM values. So if you wanted to watch or look at a specific thing like, hey, what are the dimensions of this div? You could do that in React using a ref after the fact, after it's rendered. Whereas Dojo has like a, a reusable meta that just gives you these dimensions. So in your render function for Dojo, you might use the dimensions meta to get those dimensions of that div mm -hmm. and return it back to you as properties. So now you have actual properties that you can work with instead of having to look at things and then translate them back yourself. You have this reusable meta container that has a behavioral pattern that translates things back into properties that you can use. Yeah. So Angular, how does Angular get access to the DOM, Brian? You're our Angular expert. Uh, how did I get that label? We've given it to you. <laughs> You've earned it. Um, I've earned it. So with Angular, if you want to get access to a node in your in your actual component, you could use an element ref. And that's basically like you give a unique identifier to your HTML. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in your component template, you set up something with a hashtag ID, and then the 
Angular maps that back to this element ref. And you can either pass the element ref dot native element to the Angular renderer, which you inject into your component, or you can just manually manipulate the element ref dot native element. They recommend using the renderer, but the project I'm on is using Angular 5. So this may have changed, but the renderer API is limited. Getting certain properties and certain attributes off of the native element is, the APIs just aren't that great. And so generally what ends up happening is you just access the native element itself. You're not supposed to do that because Angular is supposed to be like DOM agnostic. Supposedly you're supposed to be able to throw a different renderer in like a native iOS renderer or whatever, or even use web workers to do certain renderings or whatever. So you're not supposed to touch the native element, but sometimes it's difficult. Mm. Some of the metas that we see here that we're going to talk about in Dojo aren't quite as needed in Angular because, for instance, like Focus, that's just an event in your template. Angular doesn't have as sharp of a unidirectional data model as React or Dojo does. And so handling focus events and such like that is a little different in Angular than it would be in React or in Dojo. Yeah, and we should say that there are perfectly valid use cases for needing to access a DOM element. One that Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One that immediately comes to my mind, regardless of the project or the framework that you're working on, is if you're using like a canvas element, you would need to get access to the context to like the 2D or 3D context to be able to to do stuff with that. And so like in Dojo, you could write a meta to get access and return that context to you and then do stuff with it. Yeah, contexts and things like that, those are very interesting in that they're quite a bit more imperative than declarative. And so, you know, Dojo being a reactive framework suffers from having imperative access to any kind of DOM layer or anything like that. Dojo has, has translated a few imperative type actions, like focus is a big one, mm-hmm. into declarative ones. So you can declare focus true as a property, and then the framework itself will call focus on your elements. So Dojo metas often offer a good escape hatch for that in that you can call imperative things. So if you have an audio element or a video element on the page and you need to call play, you can do that through a meta if you want and get direct access to that to make imperative choices. Yep. So yeah, Dojo metas, just to, to be very clear, what they can do is they provide the DOM access usually by a key name. So keys are are unique to Dojo and they're a property that get erased on your elements. And so you can reference things using keys, especially for Dojo metas. And those keys exist on the virtual DOM, not the DOM. And then you can return properties that can be used during render time. So your meta is a single instance, just like your widget is. Mm -hmm. So if you have a meta, you have this dot meta factory type constructor, and then you provide the meta to it. So if you're using the dimensions meta in your render, it'll be this dot meta and then dimensions. Passed to the meta function. Passed to the meta function to kind of, it kind of initializes it at the build time. Right. And then you can call methods off of your meta. And typically get is the the number one method, but you can create your own. And the idea is that 
through these methods on your meta, it provides data back that you can use to render. So in the case of the dimensions meta, again, it provides dimensions of whatever key you're happening to target in your mm -hmm. virtual DOM, and it goes to your DOM and, and it checks those and provides it back to your render. So then you can make render decisions based on properties now that you have, and you can define these behaviors as metas that are reusable. You can also call invalidate on widgets. So if you wanted to create a meta that has a timer or does something like watches something like uh, audio video to see when a duration hit, uh, gets to a certain duration or something mm -hmm. like that, you can set up timers and you know call invalidate. And your meta has your invalidate from your widget that you initialized it in using the this.widget. And so you can call invalidate and then that'll force a re-render and then it you can get properties back again from this meta. Yeah, I was wondering if we talked about that invalidate loop, right? Like where the dimensions meta, any of their functions, right? They when you call them, they always return, right? They don't, they're not blocking, right? Like with, and with dimensions, it'll return like everything zero. If you don't have anything rendered, yeah. Well, because the first time the render happens, there's no DOM because you haven't told you haven't told it to render anything. You haven't taken the results and given it to anyone else. And like the dimensions render, right? It returns all zeros. And then when it knows its dimensions, it invalidates itself. And then the render function will process again where you have those real values. So I think that, that loop is really interesting. Like when the invalidation happens, your render function doesn't really need to care. It just needs to make sure it handles situations where the data might be like its default values. Yeah. And that's one of the geniuses of the metas is you're not trying to escape into the dom from your your widget or component you're instead given access to properties that you can then use as real values in your render step mm -hmm. and so you don't have to have this i mean your your meta is well encapsulated in dom access mm -hmm. and your widget or your component is well encapsulated as you know declarative rendering of properties i know that this isn't as important anymore back in the wild west when neil and i were slinging code <laughs> the differences between browsers were huge yeah and even still today there's some little differences here and there a meta can also smooth over the differences in the code so it's the idea of well encapsulated and giving a possibly a better interface than what the uh, the browser may or may not provide since we're almost always intercepting some sort of native pattern, we pretty much have middleware for every event and for every attribute that we read. So the thing that you get back is going to always be the same because the meta is taking care of those differences between things. And that also is a tie-in to where you can test. You can mock those because one of the big benefits of a virtual DOM is that you can just test the virtual DOM itself and not the real DOM and like make sure that you know the structure that you you have is what you're expecting at any given time during the test, which makes it easier to run your tests in Node and not necessarily have a full-on DOM to take advantage of. And this is a nice tie-in to be able to, instead of having all of that code that would be interacting with the DOM node uh, itself, you can have the meta and then you can mock that during your tests and then feed it return values and then test your how your virtual DOM behaves based on those return values. Yeah, you can drive the meta yourself. Well, do we want to talk about some of the ones? I know we've already mentioned dimensions and focus. Talk about our favorite favorite metas. Yeah. Well, just to go over them, Dojo has a number of built-in metas, and these map pretty closely to behaviors. 
And so most of them are available in widget core slash meta. In fact, I think all of them are. And so they are dimensions, drag, focus, input validity, intersection, which is relates to an intersection observer, resize, which is a resize observer, and web animations. So those are the ones that are provided out of the box as these behaviors by Dojo. And so you can see, you can imagine from this that something like dimensions is very property type focused, whereas drag, focus, and input validity are things that give you access to imperative functions, especially like input validity that's checking on forms and, and whatnot to say, you know, is this form valid or not? And when it's valid, change my property from true, you know, false to true. That's what's kind of neat about the pattern, right? Is that you simply ask for something, right? And then the meta knows like, oh, this person cares about this property in this way. Yeah, linked through a key. Yeah, and then it can make sure that it lets you know when that changes. Like beyond that, it's just you're telling it what you need simply by asking for a value, right? Like intersection observers are really cool for that too. You simply say like, is this node intersecting this node? And then it sets up all of the intersection observers that makes sure that it tells you when that changes. All you're doing is reading that property. Everything else, the whole loop takes place outside of that request. The whole invalidation happens outside of the request. Mm -hmm. You don't need to know, like the intersection observer is really complicated, right? It's really complicated to set up. Even like the drag meta, right? Where it's keeping track of the original position and it's keeping track of the updates between the original position and the new position. Mouse down, mouse up. That's Yeah. Yeah. Because it's reactive, it keeps track of it globally too which is fun. It's complicated, but like all that you're really doing is you're just getting two values back. You're saying like, is it dragging? If it's dragging, how far has it changed? And that stuff's just all managed by a much more complicated bit of backend. Right. It's like an implicit approach. I don't know the right terminology for it, but not having to hook up all the events yourself is a huge win, regardless of whether you're touching the DOM or not. It's just really easy. Yeah, and then redefining how these different metas target actual underlying DOM or your render structure using keys, really nice. So, you know, overall you have three types of metas. You have things like dimensions, which provide you properties and information back. You have something like input validity that gives you imperative access to the underlying DOM and then provides you again, properties back. And then you have something like web animations, which kind of work more as like a play and stop type interaction on your underlying animation structure. So it kind of manages, you could think of a stream of something or you know the overall behavior of something through a process. But all of them come back as essentially properties with, you know, and the metas give essentially functions that you can access those properties. The thing that I like about the metas is that you've got these small pieces that manage kind of big functionality, but then you can use your own. So if you go and look, again, I guess I'm the Angular expert. I'm rolling my eyes as I said that. (laughs) If you go and look at the code for focus events and then if something is active or if it's not, but you kind of have to track that yourself in five, if something's active or not, and then add classes to it or not. With Dojo, even if that wasn't in the framework, you could add a meta to your own library and then just call that with the stop meta. And you can easily add new functionality to it. Uh, I think that the the web animation stuff 
started out as somebody developing this third party and then submitting it back to Dojo, if I remember correctly, because it's easy to take this functionality, wrap it up in a meta, and then just, you know, distribute it. Whereas the animation, trying to keep track of web animations and those sorts of things in Angular is, is much harder because you have to write your own directives or, or whatever. With Dojo, you're just you're throwing a meta at it and then it tells you when it's changed. It invalidates and lets you know the, the new values. Just like magic. Just like magic. I don't generally like magic. <laughs> well, a framework advanced enough is indistinguishable from magic. There is that, so I'll give you that. Do you have something to say, Nick? Uh, I was just going to ask if you find yourself using metas pretty regularly in the projects that you work on. I think we do use them. For the projects I've used, we mostly use what the built-ins are because they provide most of the behavioral functionality that you would need. But we do use them being reactive we also tend to kind of avoid any of that DOM interaction, but when we need them, they're there and they work. And so, you know, for hobby projects, we've done web animations and things like that, and it works very well. And then all of the other small things, like, you know, in other projects, I've used the drag meta to determine, like, in one case, I have a, an audio player, kind of like Winamp, and you want to be able to drag the thumb to a different location to start playback and things like that. And so, having metas manage the property values of those things and then just dealing with the resultant data rather than trying to have to coordinate because all of that coordination behavior exists in the meta but is encapsulated there and so it becomes data when it goes back out to your render is fantastic at least on an encapsulation point having to do this before in like dojo toolkit it was just a mess of like, well, how do we encapsulate this so we might be able to use it in other places or do we need to? And then what are all the corner cases? And just when do we update things where it was a mess. And so this has cleaned it up quite a bit and avoided a lot of that confusion. And I think you hit on something. This might just be a repeat of what I said, but you don't have to like rewrite this functionality or have an extra component in your, you know, like a drag component or whatever that, that handles this. It's just a piece that encapsulates and provides you back data that you can use in any component anywhere, right? You don't have to have a new component. You don't have to add functionality to the framework. It's just there. Like it's a data provider, essentially. Yeah. And the genius is that you can use keys to then just map it to whatever component you want the behavior associated with. Right. Well, we will uh, definitely provide show notes for all of this information we've just provided for you guys. Be sure to check those out. If you have any questions, feel free to, to tweet at us. Paul's the expert on metas, so tweet <laughs> him. And then tweet Neil with your Angular questions. <laughs> no. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We uh, have a Dylan is speaking at the Future of Web platform on April 25th. Yeah, he's speaking at what? FutureSync. Yeah. About the future of the web platform. You know, I've seen the talk before and it goes about the cycle of innovation and where we're at right now. So that's what, April 25th at FutureSync in the UK. All right. And we'll provide a link in the show notes. All right. I think that wraps this up, guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, until next time, stay type safe. Yeah. Bye. Thanks all. Thanks for listening to the TalkScript podcast. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, 
subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter at TalkScript. We record new episodes every other week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. We've got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba. We've got a good